Would you welcome Dr. Mark Bailey? I drive a Toyota 4Runner. My wife uh, likes a Ford Escape. When I drive my Toyota 4Runner and I pull into a gas station, I have to reach under the uh, steering wheel and there's a black lever that releases the uh, gas cap door on the back left fender of my 4Runner. When I was invited to come to Valley on my way to uh, Mount Hermon this year, I uh, immediately said yes because uh, every time I come here uh, on the way to Mount Hermon, I'm uh, filling my tank uh, with your fellowship and with your worship and Deborah and team, thank you so much. And uh, the Howard family, the extended Howard family, as you know, has been such a blessing to Barbie and to me. And so I, uh, I have flipped uh, the switch and uh, that black lever uh, opened my gas cap and uh, I'm filling up this morning uh, on our way to uh, Mount Hermon. I am in my 27th year at Dallas Seminary. I started when I was two. Someday they'll let me out. But uh, I'm in my 12th year as being president, which uh, lets you know that God has a sense of humor uh, and evidently a lack of leaders, uh, that God would have me do what I'm doing. But I have a wonderful team and a wonderful uh, uh, Lord, and it has been a uh, terrific privilege. Uh, I need to tell you, as I stand in this pulpit, that I am committed to uh, every word of this book. Uh, I believe that the God who created the universe is the God who revealed himself, and I believe this book is uh, without error uh, in its original uh, manuscripts, that it preaches truth, and that the psalmist, who when he said, all of your words are true, you either take that one to the bank or you don't. And all scripture is the result of the breath of God. And therefore, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness that the, uh, the man of God, the one that God would choose to use, the man or woman of God, uh, can be equipped and thoroughly furnished to every good work. Uh, I believe that. And I won't hire a faculty member who doesn't. And we won't keep a faculty member who strays from that. And we are committed to our founding uh, faith. We are committed to our doctrinal uh, heritage. And I am uh, only one of five presidents that we've had, but by God's grace, as I hand that baton to a sixth president in uh, whatever time God wants me to do that, that we will have been faithful in our lap around the track with the truth of God. Uh, I'm committed to that. And I need folks like you praying for us that we will not drop that baton. And by God's grace, uh, for now 89 years, uh, Dallas Seminary has stayed on the beam and has stayed on track, and that's important to us. Uh, thank you for your worship. Thank you for your heart for God. Thank you for being a light in this community. I'm, I'm speaking to the choir this morning because the text that I have uh, chosen that I believe God has asked for us to bring is Acts chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 17. You'll understand why it's so applicable to you and to your situation and to the history, the 41-year history of this church. The city of Athens, as we celebrate the Olympics, the city of Athens at the time of Paul was known and is still known world over for its magnificent art and architecture. Uh, the art, however, characteristically portrays the exploits of the various gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. Uh, they were uh, pantheistic and they were pluralistic in their deities. 
And, and, and the most impressive buildings, unfortunately, that are still on display were ancient temples to pagan gods. Uh, the Acropolis, as I'll show you a picture, uh, acro meaning up and, uh, or height, and polis meaning city, uh, is the, the, the high place of Athens. Uh, worship took place, celebration took place on high places in Israel, in, uh, in Rome, in Athens, in Corinth. Uh, there's Acro-Corinth, and uh, uh, there are hills in Rome, uh, just like there were hills in uh, Israel, on which uh, both God was worshipped at times and pagan deities were worshipped at times. Uh, this is an artist's conception that will show you of what it could have looked like uh, at the time of Paul as he visited uh, this city. And then uh, there is a place that's probably the most famous piece of architecture, the iconic architecture that comes out of, Ro of Athens is the Parthenon. Uh, Barbie's brothers, uh, Steve and David, live in Nashville, and there is a replica of the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, when I have been at Athens on numerous occasions with study tours uh, and, and hear the explanations and study the literature, the, uh, the architecture was genius, uh, unbelievable. Uh, creativity to make it look like parallel lines when they're not exactly parallel lines. It was all with a vision of straight uh, architecture, but uh, the, the walls lean and the beams lean, uh, the, the, the pillars lean at just the right angles so that when you get a picture of that, it looks square and, and it looks uh, symmetrical because uh, they wanted it to look good in their worship. It, it, it's with that background that, that, that Paul comes uh, to this city and, and what had been the centerpiece of, of Greek culture at the time of Paul had shrunk in its population because Greek, uh, the Greeks reached their zenith prior to the time of the New Testament in Jesus and Paul. And uh, uh, Alexander the Great in uh, about 333 B.C., uh, when he finally dies, they, have, they had reached their zenith and, and they had begun to decline. Someone has said that uh, what we have in Acts 17 is a short conversation with a small crowd in a shrunken city. But it's still a significant event because God stitched it into Holy Scripture uh, to help equip us in handling the kind of a culture uh, in which we would find ourselves in our day, as we'll talk about as we go through. I don't usually do this, but because of this passage and because of what it contains, I, I want to lay out uh, the thesis, so to speak, right up front. Uh, I, I'm in the business of reproducing a generation of godly servant leaders for the next generation at Dallas Seminary. That's our mission, uh, to glorify God by equipping godly servant leaders for the proclamation of his word and the building up of the body of Christ worldwide. That's our mission at Dallas Theological Seminary. I've given my life in the last 40 years to uh, teaching and preaching and to raise up another generation to pass that baton of truth for the next generation. Uh, I, I sincerely believe we need a, a generation who, who, who are, are troubled in their spirit because of the conflicted culture in which we find ourselves and, and are so troubled in their spirit that they would be willing to be engaged in the proclamation of truth in spite of the various responses that we might get. Can I say it again? We, we need a generation of Christians who have troubled spirits and the willingness to engage a conflicted culture with the proclamation of truth in spite of the range of responses that they might get or that they will see. That's, that's the need 
I, I want to unpack it. Thank you. I, I want to unpack it from this passage. You'll, you'll, you'll be amazed as I am of how it, it, it peels out from uh, Paul's encounter. Paul had uh, been in, in Philippi, and you remember, went to jail for his faith. And, and he and, and, and Silas, we used to sing about it as kids, Paul and, and Silas in prison, uh, singing songs at midnight, and, and God doing a holy shakeup and delivering them, and the Philippian jailer probably asking, what must I do to be saved to save his own neck? Uh, they gave him the answer of how to save his soul. Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and, and you'll be saved. In spite of what Rome does to you for letting us out of prison, uh, in spite of uh, uh, being the guards that were on duty when God did a holy shakeup, uh, you can know your, your soul is taken care of if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. From there, they came around the Aegean Sea, and they, they visited uh, not just Philippi, but they, they visited a town called, uh, the, the Greeks today call it Thessaloniki. Uh, we usually say Thessalonica uh, from our biblical studies history, but they call it Thessaloniki, and from there they went to Berea. And Timothy and Silas stayed in Berea, and because of the agitation of the crowd that the Jews had stirred up against Paul, uh, they, they, they whisked Paul away, and he comes to Athens. And uh, when we come to chapter 17, he's on his second missionary journey, and he's waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas to join him when we pick up our text. But I want you to see, it's what Paul saw that caused Paul to do what he did and to say what he said. Uh, notice the text in, in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he was beholding a city literally under the idols in the Greek language, under the idols, under the influence of idolatry. Paul being a Jew with his strong monotheistic background, having been a Pharisee, uh, and, and, a, and a leader of the Jews had, had such distaste for graven images because the one thing that God did uh, get out of the Jewish system in the Old Testament was their love for idolatry. Uh, they, God, God just took them to the woodshed over and over, and, and so they detested graven images. And, and, and it must have been uh, so unappealing, and pardon the pun, unappalling, you know, that, that Paul was appalled over uh, uh, what he saw. In fact, there's a medical term. We get our word uh, paroxysm from that. Uh, and uh, paroxuno is the Greek word, and you get shots for that at the local, you know, nurse's station. But it literally means to, to sharpen, and figuratively means to be, be aroused, to be excited, to be stimulated, to be poked uh, in a negative sense. It's only used here and in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 5, where uh, uh, to, to, to be agitated, to, to be provoked, and Paul's spirit was agitated because of the idolatry that uh, surrounded this culture in the city. Can, can I ask you a question this morning? Are, are, does what you see going on in this world bug you? Now, I'm not talking about just the inconvenience. I'm bugged by that too. You know, you st spend more time in a fast food line than it takes you to do it on your own. You know, fast food is now an oxymoron, okay? It, 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 it takes longer to go through a fast food line than it does to fix your own meal. Uh, it's it just the opposite of what it was built for. Uh, you know, we flew into San Francisco. If you work for Avis, God will forgive you. <laughs> but the signs went like this, you know, go down this way to go to Avis. We went this way to try to find the car. And they said, no, you have to go the other end of the building. I said, well, why did your signs tell us to go this way? And he sort of looked at me like, we don't know either. <laughs> okay, I mean, not, those kind of things bug me, okay? Uh, but the question that I have to ask myself, does that bother me more than my city going to hell? Does that bother me more uh, than uh, unreached neighbors and neighborhoods? 
And I confess, too often, I'm, I'm more bothered by my inconvenience of, of watching America and quality of life, you know, degenerate than I am having the degenerates come to a regenerate relationship with Jesus Christ. Ancient descriptions testify that the marketplace was virtually lined with idols, and Paul was infuriated by it. It's a, it's a particular tense of the Greek that it just kept bothering him and over and over and over. And, and what he saw made him do what he did. And his friendly physician, the co-laborer who traveled with him, uh, describes his response for us. Look, look at verse 17. Uh, here's because of what Paul saw, this is what Paul did. In, in verse 17, it says, So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and, and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with who happened to be present. Uh, Paul had an intentionality in his approach to his religious heritage. He, he was also willing to be accidentally interrupted in his daily experience. But he was reasoning with them about Jesus Christ. The people, the places, whether it's a religious or a civil environment, the frequency is all mentioned here. That, that's his audience. That, that's, that's to whom he's willing to speak. But what is he saying? Alistair McGrath, who is an English theologian, came to Dallas a number of years ago and did a, our lectureship, our a scholarly lectureship series in the spring of that year. And, and he, uh, he mentioned that uh, Paul's apologetics were, were both positive and negative. Let, let me explain. Apologetics is a term not to say I'm sorry, but it's a, a defense of the faith. And, and apologetics can, can have both components, both a positive as well as a negative. On the one hand, it concerns the countering of objections to the Christian faith, and on the other, it concerns setting out the attractiveness of the gospel. Hence, there's a negative side, but there's also a, a real positive side. Uh, on the negative side, it's, it's giving answers to people who say, that can't happen, that won't work that way, we don't trust that, etc., etc. How do we defend the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude talks about, that's a defensive posture of giving answers to those that are attacking Christianity. That needs to be done. There are experts who are trained to do that well. Uh, on the other side, there is the positive of laying out the unbelievable treasures of the glory of the grace of God and uh, the attractiveness of Christ. Uh, both of those are needed. Paul was living out his claim to the Corinthians, I've become all things to all men so that by all means... I might save some, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 22. John Stott, who recently went to be with the Lord, said it well in describing Paul's abilities here. He said, one cannot help admiring Paul's ability to speak with equal facility to the religious people in the synagogue, to casual passerbys in the city square, and as we'll see in this passage, to highly sophisticated philosophers, both in the agora, the market, as, and uh, the men when they met in council. Paul uh, had a troubled spirit, and as a result of that, he had a willingness to engage. But he lived within, and he ministered within, a conflicted culture, uh, just like you do here in Northern California. Look at verse 18. And also, some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Notice the disrespect. Others he seems to be pro a proclaimer of strange deities. In other words, he's a false teacher. Because, watch this, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's the song which, with, with which we finished this morning. You know, uh, uh, up from the grave he came. 
Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the irony is if you're a sophisticated, scientific, philosophical kind of a person, uh, at the first century, you, you neither liked Jesus nor did you believe in the resurrection. But I love that Paul didn't dodge it. They, 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 they got the message well. He's speaking about Jesus, and the only reason Jesus is that important is because God not only sent him to this earth, not only sent him to the cross, not only had him buried, but raised him from the dead on the third day. That's what gives us victory. That's what assures our salvation. Uh, Paul didn't dodge that. He, he preached that boldly and plainly, even in a conflicted culture that didn't like it. Now, now you need to understand, they, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, I'm going to show you a, a slide. The, the Areopagus is, is known as uh, Mars Hill. It, it was the, 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 a, a, a rock just uh, off of the uh, edge of that Parthenon structure, just over the, the edge of that. You can see the Parthenon real well from Mars Hill. And uh, it, that's where these uh, sophists, that's where these philosophers gathered to duke it out verbally about uh, the latest issues. Notice the text. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may, may we know this new teaching, what this new teaching is you are proclaiming. Verse 20. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Oh, we want to know therefore what these things mean. Notice the parenthesis statement. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in doing nothing other than telling or hearing something new. You know, that, that was how they spent their time. So what Paul saw caused Paul to do what he did, and, and it caused Paul to say what he was going to say, but this is what he's facing. Now, let me back up and explain these two philosophers for a moment. Uh, th th these are two competing philosophies that continued to control Athenian thought at the time. And, and, and ironically, they were mutually exclusive in their views. This is the irony, okay? You have Epicurus on the one side, and you have the Stoics on the other. Epicureans uh, were founded by Epicurus in 341 B.C. He lived to, be, uh, to, to 270 B.C. The Stoics were founded by Zeno of Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and uh, he lived from 340 to 265 B.C. That won't be on the test, don't worry. Now, philosophically, the Epicureans were hedonistic. Eat, drink, be merry. You only go around once in life. Get all the gusto you can get. You might miss it. Get it while it's coming by. Experience it. Try it. You'll like it. it that philosophy continues to this day. In a, in a permissive, try-it-all society, Epicurus still lives, so to speak. On the other end of the spectrum were the Stoics. Uh, they were the opposite of hedonistic, but they were pantheistic in that they believed God was in everything. In this desk, there was God. In this mic, there was God. In this microphone, maybe not. Just teasing, just teasing. But Stoics ha have a proverbial definition because they're just sort of stuffy. These guys are the party animals. Th these were the guy, the sophists that sat around and just looked serious. Uh, the ultimate legalistic people of their day. These were the people who had taken the license and run to excesses. These are mutually exclusive philosophies. The, the Stoics think that God is in everything, the Epicureans were saying, we think he's way far away, so it really doesn't matter what we do. Now, those are mutually competing, mutually contradictory philosophies. Isn't it amazing they find a common enemy or opponent in Jesus? I was thinking about this, and I thought, welcome to the first century. 30 or 40 years prior to this, Jesus of Nazareth was causing such an uproar within his own little country that there were two groups that got together to put him to death. 
on one side were the Herodians. These are Jews who have sold their soul out to Rome and supporting a, a, a humanly appointed leader as bad as Herod was. And if you understand the Herods and that line, these are Jews that are loyal to the worst kind of a megalomaniac leader and his sons that you could ever have. On the opposite side are a group called the Pharisees. They, they, they were the religious nitpickers, okay? Gnat strainers, Jesus called them. You know, and uh, they strained gnats and swallowed camels in their, uh, you know, uh, Judaism. Uh, and, and, and these two groups are mutually opposed, except when they want to get rid of Jesus. And I thought, welcome to the 21st century, because never before have we had such evangelistic atheism on one end of the spectrum. Uh, guys like, uh, you know, Harris and uh, uh, Hutchins and some of these guys that are writing at lay levels to uh, infect the masses with the uh, ridiculousness of ever having faith in God or anything. This is uh, uh, atheism on the one end. That's tolerated in our culture is okay. Have you noticed that? It's cool, especially on the university campuses. But equally cool is stuff that is exactly the opposite of that. On the other end of the spectrum is pantheism. I'm sorry, is pluralism. And that is that, that, that no one faith is good. All faiths are okay. So let's have an interfaith dialogue and encourage one another because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Isn't that fun? Let's not offend anybody. Now the irony is you can't be an atheist and be a pluralist. You can't be a pluralist and be an atheist. But atheism and pluralism are okay in our culture. But Jesus isn't. He's no good. Why? Because he dared to say, God so loved the world he sent me. And I love the world so much, I'll lay down my life for it. And there's no other way for you to get to God except through me. And I was willing to die on your behalf. And we say, no, 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 no. That's intolerant. I like what Rabbi Zachariah said. If somebody says, that's your truth and I have my truth, just say, you're wrong. <laughs> and, and watch where the conversation goes. Because that won't work, you know? Because then he's got to say either, if I say you're wrong, he has to say you're right. Otherwise, my truth's not my truth and his truth's not his truth. Some of you will get that about 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> right in the middle of the swimming going like this, okay? Just like that. But welcome to the 21st century. We're right in the middle of this stuff. And I love what Paul does. In fact, I, 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 was, I made a statement in the first hour that I need to correct in the second hour because uh, uh, what, what we have in the book of Acts is we, we have speeches that are written to the Jews, like Peter's in Acts chapter 2 and Stephen's in Acts chapter 7. We have this one that's written to the Greeks, and then you have Paul later writing to the Romans. And what God has given us in this book is ways to approach people who are steeped in Scripture. And so you have in, that, in Peter's message loaded with scriptural references to the Old Testament. Uh, Stephen does something similar, but he tells more of the narrative to the Old Testament, to some that might be not so you know, clued into the passages. When you get to this one, Paul is not going to quote any passage, but he's going to teach phenomenal theology and, and what Paul will do when he talks to the Romans is that he'll go after the emperor cult of uh, uh, idolatry of the emperor when he speaks in, uh, once he gets to Rome. See, God gives us in his word that is forever settled in the heavens and which cannot be broken, 
He gives us a manual and says, you want to deal with these kind of people? Use this kind of a passage. You want to deal with these kind of a people? Use this kind of a passage. And, and it's an instructional manual in how do you reach out to people who just don't think Jesus is it. Now, I lay that as a backdrop because John Stott says he, he delineated the Christ of Scripture and he proclaimed the Jesus of history and identified both of them as the same person, which the liberals could never do, as the heaven-sent Savior of sinners. Journalist Walter Truett Anderson says, never before has any civilization, as much as ours, made available to its populace such a smorgasbord of realities. Never before has communication system like the contemporary mass media made information about religion, all religions, available to so many people. Never has a society <coughs> excuse me, allowed its people to become consumers of belief and allowed belief of all kinds to become merchandise. That's where we are. It may shock you that only a quarter of those who claim to be born again base their moral and ethical choices on this book, which means three quarters overlook the Bible as their shaping worldview influencer. Only half of those that use the Bible as their moral guides believe that the moral truth that it teaches is absolute. And only one in 14 born-again Christians rely on their Bibles as a moral compass and believe that what it says is always. We're living and witnessing a collapse of theological literacy, as your pastor said, and a rise of unabashed unbelief in America like never before. And the real question is, will we continue to sever those biblical roots or will we recover them? And it'll happen one life, one church at a time. Well, what did Paul say? Look at verse 22. He stood where they took him, in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, what would you have done with that? Paul decides to use it as a bridge into the conversation. You have an idol over here, and the idols lined the streets and lined the uh, Parthenon, and uh, there were all these little uh, uh, nymph uh, vestibules and everything else, uh, the sexuality cult and all of that that was up there at, uh, you know, at Athens, like it was at Ephesus and Corinth. And, and, he, and he said, I, I noticed you had an idol that had, you know, just sort of a blank uh, plaque to it, to an unknown God, just in case you missed one. And so basically what Paul is saying is, let me tell you about the God you missed. You know, you're worshiping all the wrong gods. Let me tell you about the God you ought to worship. And so he uses that. There, there's people in our day that wouldn't be comfortable doing that, but Paul was. <laughs> And, and so he grabs a hold of that imagery and he brings it over. And I want you to see what he does. He, he doesn't quote scripture. He doesn't do Bible thumping with people that don't have the Bible, you know, as a backdrop. But he doesn't hedge at all on the systematic theology that the Bible contains. So I want you to see what he says here. Uh, very quickly, notice number one, he, he calls God the, al the almighty creator. That, that contradicts both pantheism and naturalism that the Epicurean and the Stoics believed. Notice verse 24. The God who made the world, don't miss this, and all things in it, the cosmos and the creatures, the God who made the world and all things in it, he is the almighty creator. He doesn't hedge on that. I know that's not popular at Berkeley. I, I know that's not popular at the University of Texas, okay? We've got a little bit more Christian influence down, you know, at Texas A&M, okay? But uh, there's some great great, great campus ministries that are going and flourishing down there. 
uh, in Reed Arena down there. On a Tuesday night, we have 5,000 students that gather, and one of our graduates preaches, and the music is led, and uh, it's a marvelous ministry uh, at, at Texas A&M University. It can happen. Trust me. It can happen. At UT, probably wouldn't happen. I'm not at A&M grad either. We tell jokes on the Aggies, but it's okay. Number two, he's the universal Lord. He, 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 he says, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. See, they believed in territorial deities in Old Testament, New Testament times. No, no, he, he's unterritorial. He's the God of heaven and earth, the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. That would have been a shot over the bow of the Greek system with the Pantheon sitting in the background. He does, or the Parthenon sitting in the background. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's the universal Lord. Number two, or number three, he's the, the bountiful giver. Look at verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands. See, you can find God in a box and you can bring your little offerings to him. That's not what our God needs. Now, please understand, God wants us to serve him, but it's not because he lacks anything. He knows that when you and I serve, we learn more about him, which is our biggest need, and we come to worship him, which is our ultimate goal and our ultimate need. He, he, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. See, when you understand that about God, you're, you're not going to diss him as somebody negative. Every, everything good that you've ever experienced in your life has come from him. Because he's the God of all grace, the Bible says. He's the God of all comfort, the Bible says. He, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. If you've got anything good going for you in your life, it comes from a good God. That's where it all started. It's where it all started. And he's the sovereign sustainer. Now, don't miss this. Even Christian schools are having problems with this one. And he made from one, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live, all, all live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Where did we get all the peoples and all the nations? Just read Genesis, because Paul agrees with Genesis. Now listen, you either have to throw Paul out with the bathwater, or you have to buy into, by one man, Adam, sin entered in the world, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned, Romans 5.12. And Acts 17 and Romans 5.12, unless you're going to throw both of those passages out, you have to believe that from a common man, Adam, God brought the rest of humanity into being. Now here's the problem, why people are balking at that, because they're also stumbling that from one man, Jesus Christ, God can bring a new creation. When you let one of those pillars go, you're going to have to ultimately let the other pillar go. That's another whole message in a series all by itself. But he's the sovereign sustainer. Number five, he's the divine designer. He's the divine designer. Why did he do this? Why did God create? Why does God sustain? Why is God so involved in this? Because Here's the purpose, that they should seek God. As our brother said, the Old Testament says, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek for me with all of your heart. Jeremiah says it, First Chronicles says it, that they should seek God. Now watch, I love this. Uh, you know, there's some theologians on the edge that won't like this because Romans 5, uh, or 3.11 says, no man seeks after God. On our own, no, we don't. But why has God done what he's done within creation is so that we would seek him. See, it's not apart from God that it's happening. It's through the wooing of God that it does happen. Your pastor's been preaching on this. That's, that's John chapter 6. Nobody comes if God's not pulling them and pushing them and bringing them and giving them. That's a, that's a God thing. 
but what has God been doing his thing? <laughs> so that we would seek him and perhaps we might find him. It's like groping for him in the dark and we find him. And, and some of you found him when you weren't looking for him, right? Oh yeah. Some of you didn't expect him to show up when he showed up in your life. That, wasn't, that was the last thing on your mind when God got a hold of your life. <laughs> God loves to do those surprises. I, I love listening to our student testimonies and one of the things I've found over 40 years of teaching now uh, is that uh, nobody's story is the same. And God doesn't use only one passage to bring people to himself. In fact, I'm surprised at some of the passages he does use to bring people to himself. It's a bit humbling. You'd almost think it was a God thing. <laughs> You'd almost think that, but don't think about it too quickly. Notice that they should seek God, if, and perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. That just took the Stoics and threw them out. For in him we live and move and exist. That threw the Epicureans out. And even some of your poets have even said this, and he throws one of their own at him and says, well, for we are his offspring. Now, you and I have heard of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, and that's, there's some pagan liberal junk under that title, but there's a part of that that's actually true. He is a heavenly father, and, and he is the father of all creation, but you've got to go beyond that if he's going to be your eternal father and you're going to have a new creation. And so, you know, it's true. Even the poets were right when he says we're his offspring. To a point, that is true. Now watch this. Then being the very offspring of God, here's how we ought to think. Since we are his creation and since we are his, 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 at his heartbeat, then being then of the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art or thought of man. He's the eternal father. He's the eternal father. He's not in a box. He's not in a stone edifice. He's not in a, in, 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 a, in a crypt somewhere. He's not just on the ark. He's the eternal God who would love to have a relationship with his children if they'd only trust him. Why? Watch what he's done. Look at verse 30. Therefore, here comes the application. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring, watch this, to men that all everywhere should repent. If all everywhere should repent, then the provision of Christ must be for all people everywhere. Otherwise, the demand wouldn't be kosher. And so he tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2.9. Not for our sin only, but for the sins of the whole world, 2 John chapter 2. And, and, and he's declaring for all people everywhere to repent. Now, what does repentance mean? I think the best definition in Scripture uh, for this kind of repentance, there, there's ongoing repentance for a, a Christian. Godly sorrow promotes repentance, the Bible says. But this kind of repentance is what's found in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, where it says they repent from dead works to faith in God. That's the turn that happens at salvation. I, I come to the end of myself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I can't do it. God can do it. I don't have it. He has it. It's not me. It's Jesus. That's the turn. That's what they need. That's what only works. That's the repentance that he's asking for. Well, what happens when that happens? Oh, <laughs> you know, if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how you get prepared. It's the flip side of faith. It's, it's the faith of repentance. It's the repentant faith. <laughs> it, it is repenting from me to believe in him. That's the turn. And it's God-granted. It's spirit-provoked. It's Bible-centered. It's God-glorifying when that happens. But he's not just a gracious redeemer. The shoe drops here. Why is that so important? God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Peter echoed 
in 2 Peter 3. Why? Because, verse 31, he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. The standard has not been given up. Holiness has not been compromised. Truth has not been set aside. Justice has not been forgotten. He will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that's Jesus, whom he's appointed. How did he prove it? By raising him from the dead. You see, it's the resurrected Christ who will be the one who will judge the world for having not responded to him. It's just, and that's why he is the just and the justifier of those who come to him in faith, Romans tells us. What's the point? The time is limited. God has been gracious. Uh, repentance is urgent. Righteous judgment is certain. Jesus is the judge. The resurrection is the crowning evidence. To deny any of this for whatever personal or philosophical reasons would be disastrous. He isn't compromising truth at all in this passage. And that's why to defend the gospel is to proclaim the gospel, and to proclaim the gospel is to defend the gospel, as this F. Bruce said. So I finish where I started. We need a generation of Christians who have troubled spirits and the willingness to engage a conflicted culture with the proclamation of truth. But I don't stop there. In spite of the range of responses that they will see. Look at one more verse or one more passage. Look at verse 32 and following. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. <laughs> you know, it's like, that, that's not scientifically possible. Well, not without God, you're right. We, we believe that. Without God, it's not. But with God, if God's all-powerful, then the one who can create is the one who also can resurrect. Sailors buried at sea are not a problem for him. I don't want to be graphic, but where do all those little parts go? That's not a problem for God. Any more than somebody that decays in the ground or burns in a building. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, fish nibble to fish nibble. <laughs> it doesn't matter. God can bring that back. God can resurrect. It's a recreation. They begin to say, you can't do that. Others said, oh, wait, I, I, we want to hear more about that. And then there's two guys, a, a man and a woman. I love it. But some men joined him and believed. And among also were Dionysius, the Areopagus. This is a guy that's been camped out on Mars Hill. He'd been duking it with the philosophers forever. And it finally got through to him that day. Now, don't miss that. He's been an Areopagus. He's been a stone sitter. He's been a, a hill sitter uh, with the, the sophist for a long time, so much so that you could call him an Areopagite. And on this day, he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And then another lady, we don't know anything else about her. Her name's called Damaris. Carbaugh is probably not her last name, Deborah. Probably not her last name. But here's Damaris and a few others. And that leads me to three applications, and I close very quickly. Number one, what's needed in the face of opposition is courage. Courage. Boldness in spite of the response. There will be opposition. Jesus said, count on it. Don't marvel. Mar marvel not if the world hates you. It hated me. If they called me Beelzebul, how much more will they call my, 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 my household members Beelzebul, Jesus said. Don't, don't, don't turn tail and run. You're in great company. You're, you're standing with Jesus now. Number, number two, patience is warranted for future opportunities to continue the faith conversation. What about those people who, who don't get it yet but want to talk more about it? Take the time with them. They, they may come. Don't get discouraged. What happens when they do come? Well, it's a cosmic experience of joy. There's, there's more joy in all of heaven over one sinner who repents, Jesus said, than 99 who choose not to repent. Uh, heaven strikes up the band. The angels, you know, do the chorus. The Father throws a banquet for one sinner who repents. 
I, I preach to you as the choir. You're sitting over here on the back edge of Berkeley and the, the back edge of the Bay Area, and I know the weirdness that comes across the Bay. And it filters all the way down to Texas, and it's taken root in Texas. It's coming from the East Coast. We get it from both coasts. We're, we're, we got bi-coastal crud coming to Texas. I mean, the, the fog gets all the way in spiritually. But I come to you as thanking you for a church that's standing in this area and, and, and being the Paul on Mars Hill to be boldly. Let it keep bothering you. Let it keep troubling our spirits. God, give us a holy boldness that we will take the truth into a conflicted culture in spite of the responses that we will experience. And Father, I pray if there's one here or more this morning that's not yet trusted Jesus, that they would in the quietness even of this moment say yes. I take this passage to heart that you have provided a savior, a redeemer in your son so that I don't have to stand before him as judge, but I'm one of the members of his family who have trusted him by faith. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.